I, uh, I enjoy being the assistant pastor, partially because when I'm called upon to preach, I can pick whatever I want. <laughs> and uh, I know if I was the senior pastor of the church, I would be doing what Pastor Dan's doing, and we'd be going through verse-by-verse verse, uh, passages of Scripture. And I believe that's really the best approach to the pulpit, and that is to just teach through books of the Bible, teach through line by line, word by word, verse by verse, so that we can uh, have a clear understanding of the, of the overall picture and then also delve deeply into the details as we go through it. Uh, expositional preaching is, is the way to go, I think. Um, I am, this morning, going to stay on prayer for one more week. Uh, this has been an emphasis, uh, as you know, from our, um, our meeting our annual church meeting. The elders um, are really emphasizing and praying and focusing on and trying to keep prayer before the church as a challenge to us individually to pray more, to pray more effectively in our own personal lives, but also to take the time to pray together and to come together as a church, as a congregation of people who have been saved and bring their petitions before the Lord. And last week I shared really my heart about a couple of things, things that God had been teaching me. Um, and as I looked into the verses last week that I shared with you, I was amazed myself at how many of the promises of God are attached to the command to pray. And you remember we, we looked in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, um, where God said, Who who is a God like, or the, the prophet said, who is a God like God who will work for those who wait on you? And we, we think of prayer in the sense of we go to God and we're expecting something. We're expecting God to work, to do something, to answer our prayer. And yet the, that promise was not given to everybody. It was given to those who wait on him. Um, we went over Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God promises peace. He promises to guard our hearts, but there's a, there's a prayer command attached to that promise. And so I'd like to delve a little bit deeper uh, into that thought this morning with you and, and handle this a little bit differently uh, this is not going to be an exposition of any one passage um, of Scripture, but it's more going to be a question-answer type sermon where I'm asking the questions and I'm answering the questions. <laughs> um, we're going to take a look at a lot of Scriptures as we look to the answers for these questions, but the questions that I'm raising this morning are questions that I have raised in my own life, in my own prayer life. And so, to a degree, they are personal questions, but I also believe that if anybody has any semblance of a prayer life at all, these questions will have also entered your mind. And some of them are troubling. Some of them are hard to answer. And maybe we won't come up with a good solution this morning. That's not really, I guess my intent is not to solve these issues so much as it is to, to talk about them and help us maybe look at them from a different angle so that we're comfortable with the answers to those questions. Some of these questions that we're seeking to answer 
are what you might call a paradox. Uh, a paradox are statements, true statements, or a group of statements that lead to a contradiction. I think we all have, we understand what a paradox is. It's something that's very difficult to explain because it doesn't meet our standards of logic. There are a lot of classic paradoxes in the Bible. For example, how do you explain the existence of evil in the world? This is one that atheists love to throw at Christians, and if you haven't been asked that before, it's likely if you get into conversations with people, it's going to come up at some point. And the logic goes like this. God is absolutely perfect morally. There is no evil in God. Would you agree with that statement? Another statement. God is the creator of everything that exists in this world. He is the source of all things. Would you agree with that statement? Evil exists in the world. Would you agree or disagree? So where did it come from? If God is the creator, you would say God invented evil. He created it. And yet you just said there is no evil in him. He is, he is morally inculpable. There's no, you can't say anything. There's no sin in God. And so it creates a dilemma. It creates a paradox. Something that we try to explain but don't have a very easy time explaining. Um, the same thing could be true with the ideas of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. This is one that's very popular to talk about these days. And amongst believers, um, there's a lot of discussion about this that goes on, especially in regards to salvation. Who is responsible for salvation? Is it all of God? Is it all of man? Is it some of God, some of man? Um, and we try to apply our, our human logic to these things, and we come up with, with answers that aren't necessarily biblical. So, you know, here's the paradox again. God is sovereign over everything. He's in control of everything. Agreed or disagreed? I mean, we could point to a lot of scriptures that talk about that. Man is responsible to repent of his sin and to exercise faith in God. True or not true? Okay. So when a man does repent and exercise faith in God, is that him or is it God? You just said God was sovereign and in control of all things. So how does our faith work out in the sovereignty of God. It, it, it creates a paradox, a problem. You could say the same thing for limited atonement versus unlimited atonement, as the argument goes. And we could, I could give you the statements. You would agree with the statements, but then it creates a problem. You know, God, Jesus Christ paid for the sins of all mankind. Yes, his blood covers everybody. Not all men are saved. True. So does his blood cover those who are unsaved? Are they forgiven? Do they experience the forgiveness of Christ? And, and, and you, you, sometimes we come to extremes in theological positions because we want to explain it to, um, to be able to logically understand it. Well, in the same way, there are some paradoxes when it comes to prayer. There are some things that are, that are difficult to think through. And the danger is that when we rely on our own logic, to come up with an answer, oftentimes we're going to be mistaken. Um, let me begin with 
the classic one, and then I'm going to get into something I said last week. Um, so here's my question, and this, this is one, I mentioned this last week kind of in passing, but it's a question that comes up uh, a lot in my Bible classes when we do start talking about God's sovereignty and the character of God, and when it comes to prayer, the question then comes up, do we really need to pray? Do our prayers have any effect on a sovereign God? You know, we pray, we, we request things from God, we ask for God's help. Is God going to help us because we're asking? Or is God going to help us because he sovereignly chose to help you before you ever asked in the first place? Do we really need to pray? What's the answer to that? Okay. There's, there's not a logical answer to that, because you could go round and round with that all day long. And I'm not meaning to suggest that you do that, because th that can lead to great frustration when you really try to, to nail down some of these, these deeper thoughts, these theological thoughts, and try to figure them all out. But what do we know from Scripture? Does the Scripture command us to pray? All over the place. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says, you, you memorized this one already, right? Pray without ceasing. Now, why would God command us to pray if he didn't want us to pray and if there was no need to pray? So there is a need to pray. Part of God's sovereign control and will over this world includes our prayer. Somehow it fits in there. There's a connection between God's promises and the accomplishment of God's will and our prayer. I don't know how it works exactly. Do we change God's mind? I can't even fathom that thought. And yet we see examples of it in the scripture. What did Abraham do when he was praying for, for Sodom? You remember that sequence? In, uh, in Genesis, his nephew Lot was living in Sodom, and Abraham came to God and, and tried to persuade him. God was going to judge Sodom, destroy Sodom, and the, re the response that God gave to Abraham indicates that if certain conditions were true, he would have, he would have answered Abraham's prayer. Abraham said, Lord, if there's just 50 people in that town that are righteous, would you spare them? Now, God had already said he's going to destroy them and judge them. And what was God's answer? Yes, if there were 50 people, I would spare them. So Abraham thinks, okay, what about 40? Would you, would you spare them for 40? Yes. Would you spare them for 30, for 20, for 10? Yes. And so was, was Abraham swaying God? Was God, um, was there a compulsion on God's part to move because of Abraham's prayer? It's an interesting concept, how, the, how our prayers and the sovereignty of God flow together. They weave together. And I don't know how to explain it any more than you do. I just know that that's what God has revealed. God has told us that he will answer our prayers. He has commanded us to pray. So should we pray? Yes. Even though God is sovereign, yes. Even if we don't know the sovereign mind of God, which we can't, yes. 
And then also, it's not only commanded, but we looked last week, I'm not going to go through all of those again with you, but so many of the promises of God have prayer attached to the promise. God promises, I will do this for the one who asks. I will do this for the one who waits on me. I will do that for the one who prays or calls out to me. So yes, I think, you know, as we're thinking about this paradox, the answer to that question, you can confidently say to anybody who asks you, should we really pray? Is it really that important that we pray? Or maybe even you ask yourself that question. Are my prayers, do they matter? Because sometimes, honestly, it feels like they don't. Especially when we pray over and over for something and we don't feel or see that we're getting an answer from God. And we're going to deal with that in a few minutes. But yes, you can confidently turn to the scriptures and say God commands us to pray. He requires us to pray. And he's promised to interact with us through our prayers. Let me go back and... uh, talk about something that I mentioned last week, and that's, uh, you can turn to Romans chapter 10 on this one. As I was listing out the promises of God and the prayers that are attached to them, I included this in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For, and then there's a quote from the Old Testament, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. My question is this, and I kind of stated it in a way last week that I want to make sure I wasn't misunderstood. Is prayer a requirement for salvation? Does God require men to pray in order to be saved? And at one level, I would say no. What are the requirements for salvation? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God requires faith. And really, more more fully stated, it's repentance and faith. Those are two sides of the same coin. When you exercise faith, you are repenting. When you are repenting, you are exercising faith. And so those two thoughts go together. Is there anything else required of us in order to be saved? No. If you believe the gospel, you will be saved. That is the only requirement that God places on us. And and I I could give you a whole litany of scripture on this over and over and over and over and over again. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But on the other hand, I would also say yes to that question. Not that prayer is a requirement in the same sense that faith is a requirement, But prayer is involved in the exercise of faith. And it really comes from an idea that's um, here in 
verse 13 where it talks about calling upon the name of the Lord. And I'll, I'll get deeper into that in just a second. In my view, the idea of repentance, faith, belief, trust, submission, which is what God requires of us in order to come to him, all involve some kind of a movement on our part as a sinner toward God. And that movement toward God includes communication. Uh, I talked this morning in the marriage class about how God created us in his image. And part of, I even mentioned it to you earlier, part of being created in the image of God, and man was the only part of his creation that was created in his image, is the idea that we can think. All of us, right now, you're sitting there by yourselves, you're using words in your head, right? You're understanding my words, and you're thinking your own words. You can, you can recite, we could, we could right now recite the Pledge of Allegiance in our heads. Let's do it. Go ahead. Just say the words in your head, not out loud. Is that not cool? That's what makes you a human being. We communicate. We have a spirit or a soul inside of us that is able to use language. And God created us that way because he wanted to communicate to us and he wanted us to communicate back to him. We're the only creatures on the earth that can do that. I know the rocks will cry out and that the trees will clap their hands and, and all of that. But literally speaking, we are the only creatures on the earth with a spirit or a soul that, that can communicate with God. And we do have scriptural examples of people who, who are coming to God in faith. They weren't saved. They're becoming saved at that moment who do pray. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 18. Verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee and the other was a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people. Those swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. And without getting deep into it, tax gatherers were hated on multiple levels. They were emissaries of Rome collecting Roman taxes. They were looked at as traitors, with disgust, and not only that, but there's ample evidence that these tax gatherers um, took a lot more than they were supposed to. And Rome just turned a blind eye to it. So when they, t they gathered taxes, they would gather the tax that Rome required plus, and they would keep it for themselves. And so they were despised. They were hated because of their greed and, and what they did. And so the Pharisee standing there and said, I'm glad I'm not even like this guy. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, 
was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And so you see the humility that's required for us to come to God in the first place. It's, that's how we exercise faith. We trust in what God has done and not in our own works. That's, that's vital and foundational to salvation. But what did this man do when he understood the gospel? He cried out to God. And he said, be merciful to me. He communicated with God. Another example we can find of this is the thief who died on the cross next to Christ. And this is in Luke chapter 23. Verses 32 to 43. Verse 32 says, And two others also who were criminals were being led away and uh, to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, there's the saying again, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. So here was the salvation experience of this man hanging on the cross who recognized who Jesus was. And he prays to him. He talks to him. And so what was in his heart was expressed. Now, here's my question. Do you think that the, the tax gatherer was saved because he prayed? Was it his prayer that saved him? No, <laughs> it wasn't. There's no scriptural evidence at all that God says you need to pray in order to be saved, right? What was it that saved him? It was his faith. He exercised faith in God. He recognized his own sinful condition before God. And it was his faith in Christ that provided his salvation. But what did he do when he recognized that? He instantly communicated back to God. Save me, God. What if he hadn't? Would he still be saved? I'm not going to answer the question because I think, again, the idea of faith and repentance are so closely tied in to prayer and communication. I'm not going to say that God requires prayer to save us. He doesn't. And that's why we have 
talked about from the pulpit the danger of the sinner's prayer. Because people will come up after hearing a message and they'll just parrot a prayer that somebody makes. Say these words after me. Dear Lord, dear Lord. You know, and, and they just say the prayer and somehow it's that prayer that saves them. It's not. Salvation comes by faith alone. Through the grace of Jesus Christ alone. But somehow, in our human experience, when we exercise faith, it's exercised by means of communicating to God. And, and it's, it's a part of it. And I don't know that we can just divorce it. You think back again about this idea of being created in the image of God. If you think of the first people, Adam and Eve, they were created in an environment that was perfect. They had not yet sinned. And what were they doing? What were they doing? They talked with God daily. They communicated with God. That was God's intention from the very beginning, was for him to communicate with men. To have men talk with him, to have him talk with men, and to enjoy fellowship together, God and man. When they sinned, what happened? What did Adam go do? First thing he did. Even before he covered himself, he went and hid. He went away from God, and the communication was stopped. It was blocked. And it was God that came back to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? And then Adam, again, communicated to God and told him what happened as God prodded him with his questions. So that communication was blocked until God came and restored that fellowship by covering his sin. And so we have a very similar situation. All of us, when we're born, we're in that blocked state. We cannot communicate with God because of our sin. Unless and until we repent of that sin and believe in Jesus Christ who covers that sin and then that communication is, is again opened up. And so if that really is true, then in my view, prayer will be a part of the equation of salvation. It's going to be there. It's going to be how we express repentance and belief and faith and trust in God as we, as we come to him. Think of this. There's the third thing. The words that are used in the New Testament to prompt people to come to Christ, the invitation-type words. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11? Come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and see. Come and dine. Come and drink of me. And the word come indicates a movement on my part toward him. My part as a sinner back toward God to come to him. Isaiah chapter 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. John 3.16. Whoever believes in me. Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in me. Can there be belief, trust, repentance, and a coming to God without any communication on our part to God? Just asking the question. I just, I, it seems to me like there, there has to be. The last thing was, we get back to this verse in Romans chapter 10, and the idea of calling upon God. Um, obviously, the calling upon God here is not simply a prayer to God. Okay? It has to be more than that. 
We say in uh, Romans 10, verse 13, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So does that mean that if a neighbor, we, we share this verse with a neighbor and they just cry out to God and say something to God that they're automatically saved? No, it's not the prayer that saves. So the calling out, there's more to it than just obviously a simple prayer. It, it's, it is referencing our faith. It's referencing uh, back in verse 9, the confession with the mouth and the belief in the heart. It all ties in together. So when we're calling upon the name of the Lord, it's more than just somehow verbalizing something. There's, a, there's another verse I want to share with you in Acts chapter 25, verse 11, if you turn there, that kind of shed some light on this for me as I was thinking about it. Paul uses this word. It's the same exact word that's used in, in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. That call upon the name of is one word in the Greek language. And Paul uses it here in this context, and I want to share it so that maybe it'll help our understanding of it. Verse 6, chapter 25 of Acts. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. So you got the context? Paul was brought to court. He's sitting before a judge. The Jews came down and began accusing him of breaking the law. So Paul is sitting there, hearing these things. He's being accused of things, but they couldn't prove them. There were accusations being thrown at him, but they weren't being proven at this point. So Paul said in verse 8, in his own defense, I have committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Because you have to remember that at that time, Rome controlled that area. His highest court would have been Caesar, not just the Jews. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I'm a Roman citizen. He was claiming his Roman citizenship here and said, You have no right to try me in this case. You're out of your jurisdiction. If you want to try me, bring, bring me before Caesar and see what he says. He says in verse 10, I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. You know what that word is? I call upon the name of Caesar. It's the same word. And so what was Paul doing? If this had taken its logical and ultimate end, where would Paul end up being? He would, be, he would be standing before Caesar, and he would be pleading his case. Caesar, I appeal to you. I appeal to your law and your judgment. You are the highest judge of all. If you determine that I am guilty, then I will be guilty and I'll be sentenced to death. But if not, I stand by your judgment. Whatever you have said is true, and that's what, I'm, that's what I believe. And in the same way, when we call upon the Lord, what are we doing? We are coming before God. And we are appealing to God. 
We come to him and we say, God, I have no standing before you. There's nothing that I can bring to forgive my sin, but I appeal to you in what you have done. I appeal to the Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to the gospel, which says, if I believe in Jesus Christ, I will be saved. And so in that sense, you are calling upon the name of the Lord. You are appealing to God for your salvation. But I once again say, what if Paul had gone before Caesar and stood there silently? It's assumed that he's speaking. It's assumed that he's communicating. And, and the same thing is true here. I believe that when we do this in our heart, when we come to faith and we understand that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, no one can be saved or uh, justified apart from the blood of Christ. We, we, we owe everything to him. That when we come to that point in faith, part of the equation is going to be us going to God and praying. So anyway, that was, that was another question. Does God require prayer for salvation? It's a little bit of a conundrum, a paradox. I would say no, he doesn't. It's not, a, it's, it's not one of the judicial requirements of God, but it's going to happen. <laughs> Anybody who comes to Christ is going to pray, and they're going to call out in, in that sense. So prayer. All right, let's move on. Two more questions. Next question, does, does prayer... Think about this one. Does prayer guarantee that God will fulfill his promise to you? Yes or no? <laughs> There's no easy answer to that question either, which is why I wanted to dig down a little bit deeper with you this morning. Um, last week, obviously, we... We talked about the promises of God, God working on our behalf, God delivering us, God supplying peace, God guarding our hearts, God giving us rest. And with each of those promises was attached a command to pray. And so I made the point last week that we ought not to expect God to fulfill his promises in our life if we're not praying. They're, they're again, connected together. The sovereign will of God and working out his promises in your life and in my life and the life of the church and the life of the world is somehow intertwined with prayer. They work together. And so my answer to that would be, yes, God does work out his will and answers his promises when we pray. But my question was, is it guaranteed? Yes and no. <laughs> Who was the promise made to? You've got to ask yourself the question. Can you claim a promise of God if you are not a Christian? Who were these promises made to? You go back to Philippians chapter 4, and it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, or with thanksgiving. Who was he writing to? Go back to verse, chapter 1, verse 1. Who is he writing to? Actually, verse 2, I think. He's writing to the saints in Philippi, those who had trusted Christ as Savior. So all of the promises in that letter and other letters that Paul wrote to the church were for the church. And if you're not a part of the church because you're not a Christian, you can't claim these promises. 
These are for people who've been saved, people who belong to God, people who know God, who have trusted in God. And so it's important. Sometimes we, even as Christians, do the same thing. We, go, we jump back into the Old Testament, and if God made a promise to Israel, we claim it. God never promised that to us, did he? Not necessarily. You've got to read the Bible in context and understand who's talking and who's, who's being said to. But another thing to consider, we mentioned it last week in James chapter 4. James said that, oh, let's just turn there. We'll read the verses together. James chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. Or the King James said, ask amiss. You're asking with the wrong motives. So, is it prudent for us to evaluate our motives when we come to God in prayer? You bet it is. If God isn't answering prayer, is it perhaps because we're not saved or perhaps because we're asking with selfish motives? These people in James, you know, there's a debate over whether James was writing to Christians or non-Christians or both. As you read the beginning of the book and it talks about the 12 uh, tribes that are scattered abroad, it seems to be that James is writing to believers throughout the majority of the book, but there's, there's passages which might indicate he's talking to people who either have professed Christ but have not fully and truly understood the gospel or perhaps even unsaved people. So he says, you lust. Who's the you? Well, maybe it is us. We lust and we do not have, so we commit murder. I don't know. I don't think we do that necessarily, but what is our attitude sometimes toward what we want in life? We're envious. We don't obtain. You ask, you don't receive because... You're asking with the wrong motives. So what are the right motives? Ask for the glory of God, not for yourself. What was the prayer of the Pharisee? I'm glad I'm not like them. He was proud of himself. He was selfish. He was the epitome of selfishness. Why do we go to the Lord in prayer? Is it for his glory or something that we want? And they do work together. I'm not saying that we can't go to the Lord with our petitions and our requests. Just because we ask God for something doesn't necessarily mean it's selfish, but we can ask with an attitude that wants to bring glory to him, or we can ask with an attitude that wants to bring glory and pleasure to ourselves. And so does praying guarantee? No, I don't think it guarantees necessarily. But if you are saved and you are asking with the right motives, I think when we appeal to God's promises that he'll fulfill them in our lives. Last one, how do we explain unanswered prayer? Has this been the case with you? Have you ever felt that you've prayed and prayed and prayed for the same thing over and over and over again and nothing has happened? And you ask the question, why? How do we explain when we do pray that we're not receiving answers. Let me give you a couple of things to to think about. First, we have to understand and approach prayer with the attitude and the understanding 
that God is God and we're not. If God answered every prayer that was made to him exactly as it was asked, what would happen? His will would not be accomplished, that's for sure. Right? Are we infinitely wise? Do we see into the future? You may be asking for something that is very legitimate, but if God has a plan that includes this thing that you're asking for God to remove, and it's going to have an impact in the future, he sees that. He knows what's happening. He knows the beginning from the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And perhaps he's not answering your prayer because of his wisdom. But we can't see it because we're not infinitely wise. And there has to be a, a trust and a rest in God when we pray. There has to be. Otherwise, we're just going to get frustrated every time we ask for something and it doesn't happen. Two, prayer is, by nature, a request. You're asking something of God, and a request, by nature, implies that it may or may not be granted. Do you get everything you ask for from everybody else that you ask? No. My son asks me to help him build a Lego set. I'll look at this from two different angles. I promise my son, I will help you build your Lego, your Lego set. And that's what I tell him. So he knows that I've made this promise. So he comes Wednesday afternoon and says, Dad, can you help me build the Lego set? And I say, no, not now. Thursday afternoon, Dad, can you help me build the Lego set? Not yet. It's not the right time. Friday afternoon, Dad, can you help me build the Lego set? How many times is he going to ask me and I say no before he's going to start getting frustrated with my promise. Will I fulfill the promise? I'm the one who made the promise. I have the right to oversee the fulfillment of my promise how I see fit. It may not be the right time to help him when he's asking. There may be other things that are more important at the time he's asking. Does it mean I'm not going to fulfill my promise? I will fulfill my promise. I made a promise to him. I kept my word, and I will keep my word. I'm a man. God's God. He will keep his word. But there are times when we ask and we ask and we ask, we don't see God answering, we get frustrated, there has to be an understanding that God will keep his promises. Well, think of it this way, what if I never promised him that I was going to help him build his Lego set? And he doesn't have that promise in the back of his head, he just comes to me and asks, can you help me? And at the moment, I say the same thing, no, no, no. How many times is he going to hear me say no? before he stops asking, when it is my full intent to help him, when the time is right. We, we're not infinitely wise. We don't know the mind of God. We have to come to him in humility. We have to come trusting that he will answer our prayers according to his will, his knowledge, his goodness, and that when we don't get we, what we want, it's, it's not because God is holding back on us. Did Jesus always get his prayers answered? He's God, right? What did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if there be any other way, please let this cup pass from me. 
Was that prayer answered? <laughs> it was answered in a way, yes. But the answer was no. There is no other way. Even Jesus himself asked for something that God, God could not grant and would not grant. And yet at the end of that, what did Jesus say? Yet not my will be done, but your will be done. That's the way we need to come to God. How do we explain unanswered prayer? Well, part of it is we just need to understand who God is as we're praying to him and realize that he's wise. Are we asking for something that God promised us or not? Most of the time, we're asking for things that God hasn't promised us. We're asking for good health. Has God promised us good health? Where? No, he hasn't. Has God promised us that we're going to have a steady job our whole life? Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, does it say that in there? Ephesians 3, 4? Titus? John? Does it say it anywhere? God will supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Maybe it'll be through a steady job. Maybe it'll be through something else. We don't know. But we pray for things sometimes that God has not promised. Are we asking according to the will of God? 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. I'll close with this. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. And so the question is, how do I know I'm praying according to God's will? Here's a couple things to think about. When we pray, when we come together to pray, try to pray for things that the Bible commands us to pray for. I've emphasized this before. I, I try to do it in my own life. What did Paul pray for for the church? What did Jesus command us to pray for? Pray for your enemies. Pray for God to send forth laborers into the field. Pray for those who minister the word. Pray that God would grant an open opportunity for the word to have an effect in people's lives. Pray for those in authority over you. Those are all things that we're commanded to pray about, so let's do it. Let's, let's pray for those things. In those things, we know we're praying according to God's will. And then we have lots of examples in the scripture of people praying. We read one this morning. The Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would be strengthened with might in the inner man. We can pray that for people. Paul prayed for the salvation of Israel. We can pray for the salvation of people. David prayed for mercy and forgiveness after he sinned. We can pray that way. The early church in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, prayed for boldness when they shared the gospel of Christ. Give us, give us an openness and a boldness to preach. Paul prayed for spiritual understanding for the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 1. Look at the examples that God does give to us in the scripture and model our prayers after those. I think in that way we can be assured we're praying in the will of God. Pray with the right motives. Evaluate yourself. Are you praying with selfishness in your heart? Are we asking because of lust? Are we asking because of pride like the, like the Pharisees? I think there has to be part of that. Philippians 4 says, let your prayers be with thanksgiving. Are we thankful? Are we praying with thanksgiving in our heart? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Are we persistent? in our prayers. All of these things, I think, add up to say that's how to pray in the will of God. 
And should we stop praying because we think God isn't answering? Well, if we say God isn't answering me fast enough, what is that on our part? Impatience. What does God say about impatience? Don't be impatient. Let patience have her perfect work in you. If God's not answering the way that I want him to answer, what, what is that on my part? Presumption? Selfishness? And then what if I am honestly coming before God to the best of my ability? I know, I, I believe in my heart that I am asking according to God's will. And I've evaluated my motives. They seem to be right. I'm, I'm humbly coming before God and I'm walking with him. I'm obedient. And it still seems like God isn't answering. What then? Can we take the attitude that Jesus had? And say, nevertheless, thy will be done and not mine. I think if we're seeking God, that's what will happen. I hope these questions have stimulated your thinking this morning in regards to prayer. Um, I think it's vital that we pray. I want to encourage us all in our personal prayer lives. I want to encourage us all as we think about coming together corporately to pray as a church, that we take part in that. Um, Hope as you continue in your prayer life that you don't make assumptions about God, that you won't become discouraged by thinking that God is not answering you, and that you'd be willing to submit to the will of God in spite of our honest desires. I think these are important, important aspects and parts of our prayer life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the the way that you have revealed yourself in your word as being a God who is all-knowing, sovereign, in control, knowing the future, and loving us at the same time. Lord, I thank you for who you are. And I pray that we, as individual believers in Christ and as a church, would come to an even greater understanding of how we ought to pray and not to faint how we ought to pray without ceasing, how we ought to pray for those who are unsaved, how we ought to pray for the word of God to have an effect in our lives and others, how we ought to pray for boldness and to pray for spiritual understanding amongst ourselves, and I pray that we would do that. Lord, help us not to become discouraged when we pray specifically and we feel that these prayers are not being answered. Help us to rest and trust in you, in your understanding, in your wisdom, in your time, for we know that you are even beyond time. And Lord, when we, when we can't understand and when we don't understand, when these paradoxes appear in our minds and we can't figure them out, Lord, give us the grace to rest in you. Give us the grace to trust in you and to believe in you. Father, thank you for the time we've spent this morning and ask that we'd be strengthened by it. In Jesus' name, amen.